Welcome everybody to Black Coffee and Theology. to the pod party people <laughs> i am <sighs> i've had a busy day but i'm happy to be here with you all <laughs> so this week on the podcast i have the pleasure of sitting down with faith brooks author writer creative uh justice advocate uh Many, many, many things. White, newly wife, uh, <laughs> dog mom. And we are talking about her book, Remember Me Now, A Journey Back to Myself and a Love Letter to Black Women. Mm, such a good book. I had the privilege of reading an advanced reader copy. And I want you to know... Uh, that even if you're not a black woman, I want you to go ahead and get this book because we live in society with black women and hearing their stories, reading their stories, amplifying their words and their work um, helps us to create a society that we're proud of. Right. We we are people that, that learn uh, what others go through and what they think. Right. And it's part of a holistic theology. And this is black coffee and theology. So sit back and relax and enjoy my conversation with Faith. Hi, right, everybody. Welcome back to the pod. I am excited because I have author, multi-talented, uh, creative, <laughs> uh, racial educator, <laughs> uh, Faith Brooks. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. I'm so excited to be here. Yeah, me too. One thing before I let you talk about yourself, I um, I try and say how I've experienced every guest uh, and how I kind of came to interact with them. It was through Twitter, uh -huh. <laughs> um, although Twitter can be a, a cesspool, especially now uh, in these days and times. But I think I encountered you uh, commenting on a post, and this was at the beginning of the pandemic. I was like, wow, I really like this. <laughs> I really I really like the thoughts. And then I found out that you and Catherine uh, have a podcast. And I was like, well, let me get into this. Melanated Faith, let me, <laughs> let me see what this is talking about. <laughs> we in the house. And uh, I've just really experienced you as being super genuine, uh, when you're out, you're out when like, when you have your thoughts, you have your thoughts and then you're like, I'm done. And exactly. I just, ex I ex I've really, really, really appreciated that, that you are genuine, but you are not exhaustive, even in the social media space. And you're clear on that. And, uh, yeah. And I've really appreciated just, uh, how you show up even on your podcast. And yeah. So thank you, uh, for who you are truly. Thank you so much. That's so kind of you to say. And you're making some great observations because I have a, a love-hate relationship with social media. Um, 
I am a creative and I love creating, but I do not like how the algorithm um, kind of ends up driving your life and what you end up yes. posting or not posting or seeing and uh, quote unquote punishes you for taking a step back or taking a step away. It's just too much. It's too much. <laughs> you weren't meant to live like this, you know? So yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and and one thing you said, uh, this was about a year and some change ago, you said something to the effect of it's okay to share the highlight reels uh, only on social media, which is goes directly in the face of how people try to force you to be transparent in ways that may not honor you. And you're like, it's okay to just share the highlight reels and be done. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, you know, everything's not for the internet. So I think, I think there's, you know, because we change so much. And so mm-hmm. um, you just never know what frame of mind you're in, in a different season. You might be in a totally different one in the next. And then, you know, your, your, your business is living on the internet forever now. So mm-hmm. I, right. I like to be very measured with what I say to like, am I okay with this living here? You know? Yeah, no, you're right. Uh, so uh, one question I ask uh, every guest is, who are you and how, you know, what is important to you and how you show up in the world? Yeah, I, if you can't tell already, I'm very justice oriented and I really enjoy and love people. I love advocating for people. I love speaking up for people. And this is just something that I've always been passionate about since I was a kid. And um, and so it's kind of unfolded in my life. Like my career per se has unfolded in very different. And in some ways, I guess I could feel like some unconventional ways. Um, I always knew I wanted to write and be a writer. I just had no idea how I would get there. I wasn't one of those people um, in high school that had like high aspirations for education and college. And I did end up doing those things and end up being great at them, but it wasn't something that like I aspired towards. And so um, I felt like I spent my twenties doing a lot of different work in different ways doing work that I was passionate about. It worked really hard. And I'm really grateful for those experiences because it really shaped me into the woman I am today. I have my bachelor's and master's in social work, and I've spent my career working um, in the nonprofit space and really wanting to be a part of organizations that are helping to um, bring about change to systemic issues. So that's meant a lot to me. And um, I am a newlywed. I think you still consider yourself a newlywed. I still consider myself a newlywed. We've only been married for a year. So we still new to this. (laughs) Um, (laughs) So I am a newlywed. We both got married in our 30s. And so we've just been adjusting to our life together and enjoying ourselves. We got a puppy and um, he's a handful too. I mean, he's the same age as us. He's one. We got him right after we got married. So everybody's the same age. Um, (laughs) You're all adjusting. (laughs) We're all adjusting uh, to life together. Um, But it's been so much fun. It's been really great. Um, My husband and I met through a matchmaker, another very unconventional way to meet somebody. Um, but I feel like that's my life. Like I'm, I'm adventurous. I'm open to new things and trying different things. And I really love being able to do that in my life. And I think I did so many different experiences and I was one of a few black people in so many spaces over my adult life that I just realized 
I was ready to come home to myself and to make space for my sisters, to make space for my Blackness in ways that I just had not before. And I really began that journey and that kind of, yeah, unfolding, letting go of, releasing things that just did not serve me anymore. And it really led me to a place of deep appreciation for my culture, for my family, my community, and for Black women. And so, yeah, I feel like that's where I'm at right now. I'm really at a place of wanting to see Black women thrive and Mm. to feel rest and peace in their lives. Mm. I love that. I I love it. I like it a lot. I uh... So we are, you, you transitioned yourself. <laughs> you, you are true to this. You're not new <laughs> to the podcasting. <laughs> um, so we are here to talk about your book, your beautiful book. I got the advanced reader copy. Um, Remember Me Now, A Journey Back to Myself and a Love Letter to Black Women. And you already kind of alluded to that, that love and, and how you're ready to really make explicit those things that you want to uplift in Black women. And I just want to say at the outset of this conversation that this book obviously centers Black women. It's for Black women. But I'm curious uh, what you would say to, you know, as Truth Table says, the standing room section. Uh, as we get into this, because for me, reading this, I will say that I love reading um, books that center a particular community. So especially as a, a Black theologian, I read a lot of books that center Black women. And what I don't want to get lost is, although this is for Black women, uh, I read these because Black women are in my community. They they are who I'm around, who I rub shoulders with. I am interested in those things that uh, you're struggling with, things that uh, patriarchy demands of you. And so I'm just curious as even what you would say to Black men who might be tempted to pass this by, what you would say. Um, yeah, I I hope that it's a book that Black men would want to read. Mainly because we, Black women, a lot of us ride so hard for Black men. We encourage Black men. We, you know, march in the streets and organize movements for Black men. And our stories and our vantage point is so valuable, especially in these conversations as we're talking about the ways that Black women are treated in the world. And one way for Black men to become better advocates is to listen to our stories, is to hear what we have to say and hear our perspectives. And so I would encourage all Black men to read the book because most Black men have at least some woman in their life, their mother, grandmother, friend, Mm -hmm. sister. And I think that this would be a great way for them to be able to connect and relate um, to that person in their life. So I hope that Black men do read it. And I did have some of my good Black friends um, that are guys read the book and endorse the book on purpose because I really wanted... um, Black men to also have a space to sit with this book too, because I know that it would speak to them as well in different ways. Mm-hmm. And it's okay to not be the center of the tension yeah. all the time, to be decentered and have to, you know, sit at your feet. 
and I would say conversely, Black women learn our stories all the time, mm-hmm. uh, willingly or unwillingly, <laughs> and have to be students of that. So it's a, I, I want to echo that for a Black man. It's, so, it's okay for you to sit down. <laughs> read for a little bit um yeah I kind of want to jump into uh just a couple of sections that um are telling and I want to start with a quote in uh you wrote a chapter on school of microaggression <laughs> and your upbringing <laughs> uh your formation uh is intriguing <laughs> and you found yourself in a lot of predominantly white spaces but I, I'm curious as to this quote, how it hits you. Uh, and as you wrote, you, you wrote, racism is exhausting and going to a private Christian university exacerbated that. Mm-hmm. And I'm, you know, I know, I know the, the tea from reading the book, but just give us a taste <laughs> of what do you mean by that? You know, like we know that racism is exhausting, but how is that compounded uh, as you went to a Christian university? Yeah, so I went to a Christian university pre-2016, where um, I would say the foundation um, for racism and microaggressions was very set. Mm -hmm. And you basically, you, you experienced a lot of microaggressions some overt racism. And I would say in the years that followed, it got progressively um, more bold, emboldened. Um, And that was some of the years after I left. So I graduated in 2012 from college, but some of the Black people that were there a little bit longer than me talked about some of their experiences. And, um, you know, as the years progressed, it got um, even more, you know, people got bolder. That's the best way to say it. And there was a lot of different people from smaller towns that had just never interacted with people um, of color before. And there was not very many people of color. It was a smaller group. And everybody had a very different perspective on race. But specifically, I focus in the book on Black folks. I don't really focus on, quote unquote, people of color, because I had a very different experience as a Black person. And I saw Mm. the way Black people were specifically treated. And um, it was, you know, it was very apparent that it was like, you know, it's them over there where y'all sit together. Um, We had a chapel service, which at the time I thought was a good thing. Like, okay, they're trying to be diverse, Um, but it would be called, it would be nicknamed Black Chapel. That's what we would call it, Black Chapel. Lord. But, you know, now that, you know, at first, you know how it is when you're in it, you're like, okay. You're like, why wouldn't it be Black Chapel? Right. (laughs) And then now I'm like outside of it and I'm like so upset about it, you know, Um, I'm like, oh, Um, but yeah, it was, it was, there was definitely this sense of Black people having to just deal with being either one of the few um, and deal with what was being said. And I think a lot of us brushed, you know, just brushed a lot of things off. This is just how it is. But I know that had those experiences that we had um, between the years of like 2009 for me and 2012, then had in the years 2016, um, you know, to 2020, it would have been an even more bolder and abrasive experience. And so I think 
I've had to really process that, but it's exhausting to have to, you know, defend yourself or even just suppress and ignore what you're seeing. Because if I was to call out every single time somebody did or said something that was offensive or racist, I would have just been, you know, plain exhausted. And so there Mm -hmm. were so many things that I didn't always, you know, pull out and address because there would have been so many things. And I was still learning how to find my voice in that space and still learning how to advocate for myself. And so it was really towards the end of my college experience that I was kind of like, I've had enough of this and really began to hone in on my voice and speak up for myself even more. And as you look back, you know, you you share uh, a few stories uh, from being there. And I got mad reading them. <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> um, your nose ring being one of them oh, yeah. and uh, the inequality uh, and who could have the nose ring and not. And I'm curious, uh, is there a mourning that you feel or is there any pain that you feel over who you were in those spaces? I mean, you kind of allude to some of it in the book, but when you look back at who you were being in this place that's supposed to be for God, uh, that's supposed to be, you know, uh, righteous, um, is is there any pain that you feel about who you were in that space? What's in my cup? What's in my cup? Now's the time of the podcast where I share with you what's in my cup. So what's in my cup today, 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 today? I have a new coffee company um, and uh, AeroPress that I have been trying, <laughs> uh, party people. So Greater Goods Coffee Co. And the flavor that I have is Kickstart. It's got dark chocolate notes, brown sugar, you know, it's pretty good. It's a light coffee. I like it. So that's what's in my cup. I think there's, I think I'm a little sad for myself at that age in the sense that I tried so hard to fit in with people and I wanted to find acceptance in these spaces. And so there's a piece of me that's a little bit sad for myself in that way. But honestly, any other capacity or any other, you know, thoughts that I have about that phase of life, they're pretty positive in the sense that I met good people. Mm-hmm. How? I mean, you know, there's there was a remnant. Um, so <laughs> set I, apart, I, if you will. <laughs> yeah, there was a remnant of people that were, you know, good people, and some of them, you know, maybe like four or five of them that I still keep up with today. And um, and that was, you know, that was good. So I can't punish myself for what I didn't know because you don't know until you're in it and you don't know how to deal with those things. But as knowing what I know now and looking back, yeah, there's a totally a piece of myself that feels sad, but like, Oh girl, like you could have, why didn't you leave? Or why didn't you go here? Go there. You know, there's so many things that I, you know, I could say, I do know. And I do say this, I'm grateful for the friends that I made. So I I don't regret that. And so I'm glad that I have them in my life and they're lifelong friends. But if I could do it over, of course, I would have gone to a public university and not had, you know, nearly as much student loans as I do from a private university, you know, so, (laughs) (laughs) so, you know, (laughs) but I learned a lot. I learned a lot. 
And those experiences propelled me into my purpose. And that is just Mm. the truth. Um, So I, I think everything happens for a reason. And although there were some hurtful experiences, they did not mark me in a way where I couldn't recover mm. and um, thrive. And so I'm thriving now. Was it unfortunate? Yeah, but I'm not letting it hold me back. In fact, I'm letting it propel me into my purpose and activism and making sure that we call out right white supremacy wherever we see it. Mm, speaking to that white supremacy part, I uh, <laughs> how did that, uh, in your conception of white supremacy, grow in how you looked at God and how you looked at, you know, religion in general. Uh, I mean, you talk about how the exhaustion from uh, that space kind of seeped into your relationship with God, mm-hmm. um, you know, so just a few thoughts on that. And side note, the fact that you had to go to chapel every day terrible. is terrible. And I also chuckled when you talked about this recently on your podcast about going every day and Catherine said every day <laughs> yeah I, this is my favorite part of that, that particular episode <laughs> but yeah so how did you know your thoughts on white supremacy maybe seep into your relationship with God yeah you know like I said everything happens for a reason and in this situation at this school I at a Christian school, there's this perception that you're going to go to um, Christian school, come back, come out of it and just be on fire for God. And there's also this expectation, especially when you're a person who has um, been seen to be strong in your faith and all of these things. And so I left with this sense of, you know, people are expecting me to you know, come out of this thing, loving this establishment, so to speak. And I had never, I had no idea what the AG was before I went to the school. So I had no idea what the assemblies of God was, you know, or anything like that. I was used to, um, it wasn't the charismatic nature that I wasn't used to. I was used to that, but I, I wasn't, I didn't know anything about the denomination. I didn't know the history. I didn't know anything. Um, I just gone there because my brother was there. So Um, that being said, I came away from that experience very tired and exhausted. And I felt like there were so many things that had to be regimented in order to be connected to God. And I found that in a lot of the spaces I was in and predominantly white spaces and church spaces in order to, and I know what people are trying to do. But the way it is stated and the way it's expected is that in order for you to build this relationship with God, you have to do X, Y, and Z things. And I had spent so much time feeling like I was having to work my way to pleasing God. And it just was not working for me. And so I began my journey of unraveling and unlearning and asking questions while still in, you know, church spaces. I, even though I have let go of a good bit of things that I, you know, grew up around a lot of the, um, you know, the religious, you, you got to do this or do that. And yeah. um, the way that there's some made up, made up man-made things in church. That are biblical. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> and 
and uh, expectations that I, I realize that are a lot of things that people just, um, it's like church culture stuff is essentially what I'm trying to say. I started unraveling a, a lot of myself and my beliefs from things that were just simply church culture oriented. They weren't necessarily actually like truthful or biblical. <laughs> There's just a lot of stuff I realized like, oh, this is just like, this is what they say you're supposed to do. And so I began that journey after college. And so I have spent, you know, the past 12 years slowly unraveling the things that I've learned to find where I feel like is a safe place with God and with my faith. I knew for me personally that I was still finding hope in God. And I know that in a lot of the, the movements today with deconstruction, it's, you know, some people um, have shifted um, out of church spaces or out of be the belief in God entirely. And I just think everybody's journey is their own. I just knew for myself, church people, I could take them or leave them, but Jesus, I had to have. And mm, yeah. um, I love that. Like God was just still so real to me, you know, and I couldn't let go of that. Now, was I kind of done with the people? Yeah, because I'm, I was like in this, in this mental spiral of mess, you know, because I had been around all of these, you know, teachings of people saying and doing things that weren't necessarily like helpful, you know, and, and so I really had to let that go. And I also just began leaning into um, womanist theologians and learning from them. Renita Weems, like her books have just changed my life. And yes, <laughs> I mean, wow. I, she's the only, she, I talk about her all the time. Like I know her, um, uh, reading her books has just changed my life. And so I really just had to shift who I was learning from because mm -hmm. I realized that so much of the things I had learned theologically were, from white folks or taught by white folks. And, you know, it's, it's a totally different, it's a totally different aspect to lean into the God of, of liberation mm -hmm. um, and freedom and the God that opposes oppression rather than another aspect of faith that I experienced, which was you're a poor and broken sinner and Lord. um you know, these things. And so, and I, I experienced that in, in, you know, different ways. Thank God I didn't grow up in a church that where that was the constant message, but I was in church environments where that was kind of how things are presented. And, and I, I just felt like that does not empower you. It doesn't empower you in your faith. It doesn't empower you to get through life. It just puts you in a place of defeat all the time. And so faith wise, I had to really exit out of any of those places and then eliminate any of those voices. Oh, you're speaking. And I love how so many parts of my own story uh, mirror yours, especially in white spaces and kind of that evolution of faith that you had and that journey of faith that you had to go on. And I would say that, that Xing out of those voices with those toxic theologies and I say toxic because of the, look at the fruit, <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> look at the material. <laughs> um, some of those are the January 6th steps, but I, <laughs> <you> know, <laughs> but I, 
I love that you, you know, you alluded uh, a bit ago to being able to ask questions and go on that journey and give yourself that permission uh, to go towards these different voices, right? And you even wrote, um, you have these letters to uh, sisters throughout your book, and I love kind of the thread of them. And you write one where it's a letter to my sister who has questions and uh the first line is it says sis you are allowed to ask questions right and and I like the thread of that and what you're saying and I, and so how have you grown in 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 that question asking uh, uh, for yourself yeah, I think my parents gave me a lot of permission to ask questions. I think mm. the biggest part of my faith transformation journey and really untangling myself from harmful, abusive religious systems has been asking questions. And I remember saying something to my mom and she said, if you don't ask any questions, then you won't know why you believe what you believe for yourself. And it's important for you to know why you choose to believe what you believe. It's not because of what I taught you or your dad taught mm. you. You can you can change your mind and believe whatever you want to. Um, but in order for you to really decide how you feel, you have to ask questions. And so there was that freedom and space to ask questions. So I never even felt hindered in my own family from asking questions and from making my own journey of exploration in my own faith. I found though that when I was um, dealing with an experience I talk about with the pastor, he had said that you don't question authority. And so Ooh, when that I was, was, that was a doozy, a terrible, okay. Yeah. <laughs> it was a terrible situation and, and yeah. a really bad thing to say. Yeah. Um, I think he regretted it later, you know, as he apologized, but um, I ended up coming away from that. And when I wrote that letter, it really was kind of um, birthed out of what I experienced um, from from that, from asking questions and being told you don't question authority. And it really inspired me to make sure I wrote a letter that reminded people that it was okay to ask questions. Because people oftentimes, especially in, you know, if you're raised in church spaces, you're kind of taught to just respect authority, do what they say. It's very patriarchal. And, um, you know, whatever the leader says goes. And you're not really thinking for yourself. And it was really important for me to remind people that you can ask questions, think for yourself, decide what you think and believe. I am personally the kind of person that believes, listen, if that's what you choose, if that's what makes you feel good, if that's what you would like to believe and settle yourself in on, um, as long as it's not harmful or oppressive to others, then okay. That's what you're, you know, you've made that choice for yourself. Um, and I think that in a lot of faith spaces, we've made it for people cannot ask any questions. They can't question what they've been taught. They can't question um, hurtful or harmful things that have been said to them. They have, There's no room to ask any questions at all. You just have to take it for face value. And I just don't feel like that's the right avenue to go, especially when you're talking about people trying to build and cultivate their faith. If they have no options, no way to ask questions, no way to ask questions about life or anything, it just doesn't foster um, the kind of resiliency you want to encourage and see in people. And so 
yeah, I just, I, I want people to explore and whatever people end up discovering, they might have different perspectives than I do. And that's okay. Their discovery might lead them in a totally different direction. That's totally okay. But I think it's great to open yourself up to ask questions and to explore rather than to stand still and never know anything outside of what you've always been taught. Mm, I love that. I, yeah, I agree. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, you talked about your mother uh, a second ago. And one of the chapters that touched me most was your chapter uh, called God's Motherly Loved, Love. And I, I just found myself so like, <laughs> so I was reading that chapter because you start out talking about what, you know, how God has essentially shown God's self through your, your mother and her faith. And it starts out you talking about uh, seeing her come out of her prayer closet and just the tears in her eyes and, um, you know, just declaring to you what happened, you know, God's just loving on me. Uh, it was such a beautiful sentence that I really sat with. And I just love that chapter because I've been reading books like In My Grandmother's House by Yolanda Pierce, uh, kind of has a similar theme, Cat Armas with uh, Abuelita Faith, mm -hmm. Cole Arthur Riley's book. Uh, she talks about her grandmother, um, but that just that maternal presence that has taught God, you know, to Black, black and brown women. So yeah, just talk about God's motherly love. I, I love this chapter. Uh, yeah. Thank you. I, it's one of my favorite chapters too. You could actually. almost, you could do a whole book. Just you expound that, that chapter into a whole book. That's book. That's the next book. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I love, I loved writing that because um, my mom and I are really close. She's not only my mother, but she's my friend and our, our friendship has evolved as I've gotten older, but she's so special to me. And when I think about God, because I've experienced some messed up, traumatizing faith things as we've been talking about this whole time. But when I think about God and I think about what I cannot let go of, it's so, so much of it is, um, I attest it to the example that I have of my mother and the way that she has experienced God and her faith, watching her pray and watching her pray for me, watching her, um, you know, pray for others. There is not, you know, a day that I do not remember as a child, her praying and her, um, you know, seeking God and talking to God and it really inspired me. So I knew that even on the days that I just wasn't even sure how I felt about God at all, I knew that there was something there that was deep and that was real. And it, it inspired me. I, I stayed inspired even with my list of doubts. I stayed inspired and, and intrigued even when I, you know, felt like, you know what, this is so messed up. There's so many things that are just messed up and we're surrounded by these institutions that, you know, are harming people and people are walking away bruised and battered, but seeing the way that she loved God and the way that she treated people, which was a big thing for me, not only the way that she loved God, but the way she treated people, it just felt like such a tangible example of God's love. And 
an example that I got to see every day and that inspired me. And there was times that I, you know, would do things or say things that were not nice or hurtful to my mom. And she responded to me with so much grace and compassion. And I just felt like I experienced the love and mothering of God through her. The way we express and talk about God is, uh, and especially in the West is very uh, patriarchal and it almost is like there's, it's almost as if there's like no tenderness that you can associate with God in the way that um, God has talked about and presented a lot of the times. And what I was trying to bring forth in that chapter was that I've experienced the tenderness of God. And that reminded me of the love of my mother and how I've seen God flow through her. It wasn't the wrath of God um, or any of those other things that I felt like healed or comforted me in times when I was um, in deep pain, but it was the gentleness, the tenderness, the mothering, the loving, that is what helped heal and restore me in so many different ways. And I hadn't really experienced a lot of people talk about um, God in this way. And I just wanted to like find a way to express that the best way I could. And so that's how I ended up writing God's motherly love. Mm, I love it. Yeah. There's this uh, quote from your book where you wrote, God mothered me when church hurt me. Even though God has primarily been gendered as male in our culture and given traditionally male qualities through my mother, God's nurturing, I love that that thought, nurturing, and maternal attributes have been ever present. And, and I, lo- I love that because you're essentially talking about that nurturing, healing presence um, that God has kind of shown you through your mom. So I think that's so beautiful. Hey everyone, it's Faith Brooks here. I'm so excited to let you know that my new book, Remember Me Now, A Journey Back to Myself and a Love Letter to Black Women is now available wherever books are sold. So go ahead and get yourself a copy, share it with a friend, and I am just so excited for you to get this book into your hands and I can't wait for all of us to be able to talk about it soon. Coffee and Theology Pod is a production of Three Black Men, the podcast about theology, culture, and the world around us. Follow us on Twitter at Three Black Men. If you like the content that you are receiving here and want to receive more, whether that is in longer conversations, essays, devotions, and videos from either myself, Sam, or Trey, please sign up for for our Patreon at patreon.com slash three black men. 
Don't forget to like, rate, and review Black Coffee and Theology Pod as well as Three Black Men.